This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hi, it's Vanessa from the Fighting Stigma Show on Free FM. Are you a Waikato local? Do you have an idea for a radio show? Do you want to try your hand at being a content creator on Free FM? If so, check out our website on freefm.org.nz or find Free FM on Facebook and get in touch. Hello and thanks for joining the program today. In this particular series of programs, we're looking at a text titled Mind Training Like the Rays of the Sun by Namkar Pell. And over the last few times, we came to the section on gauging the success of our mind training. This comes in little axioms or slogans like integrate all teachings into one, primary importance should be given to the two witnesses, and constantly cultivate only a joyful mind. And cultivating a joyful mind in all circumstances, good or bad, is what we discussed last week. Remember, we ended with a story about Buddha and Mara and how the one cannot exist without the other. Everything in samsara arises depending on other things and is impermanent. Therefore, it cannot exist independently and needs its opposite to survive. Good does not exist without something else being bad. Something can be said to be tasty only if something else is not tasty, and the Buddha needs Mara to defeat to attain enlightenment. Thich Nhat Hanh, the great Vietnamese master, who told the story about Buddha and Mara, talks about how beautiful flowers need smelly garbage or compost. In fact, beautiful flowers become smelly garbage before perhaps turning again into the blooms that we so admire. And this is what he says, Flowers and garbage are of an organic nature because both flowers and garbage are living realities. Buddha and Mara also are also organic and they need each other. It is thanks to the difficulties, thanks to the temptations, that the Buddha has overcome his suffering and his ignorance and become a fully enlightened being. The day before yesterday I gave a Dharma talk on suffering and I said that if you look deeply into the nature of your suffering, you will find a way out of it. So if you want a flower, you have to use the garbage. That is why the people who suffer a lot now should not be discouraged. Suffering is their garbage. If they know how to take good care of their garbage, they will be able to make the flower come back to them, the flower of peace, of joy. The Buddha shows us the way to do so. When I was in Moscow several years ago, we offered a retreat to Muscovites, and a few Christians from Korea held a kind of retreat very close to ours. Some of them came to our friends and asked why they should follow the Buddha. The reason we should not follow the Buddha according to them is that Buddha is a mortal. Mortal means someone who has to die. In their mind, what we need is someone who will not die. Since the Buddha is someone who has to be born and who has to die, he cannot help us. That is the meaning of the, of the declaration made by those friends. I think it's a wonderful thing to die. Because if you are born and you die, it means you are a living reality, like the flower and the garbage. They are living things. We are for life. Anything that is not born, not dying, not growing, is not alive. To be alive means to be born, to grow, to get old, to die. To be born again, to grow, to get old, to die, and to continue like that. 
How do you expect life to be possible without change? That is Thich Nhat Hanh, and what a wonderful attitude to life, don't you think? With this kind of attitude, we can always be joyful or content. Whether we are encountering suffering or happiness doesn't really matter. We can work with whatever comes our way. Can you see how developing such an attitude brings resolution and courage? If we are prepared to accept whatever arises, we don't complain or expect things to be different. We are always too ready to work with, and if necessary, to transform whatever we encounter. Viktor Frankl, in his book Man's Search for Meaning, on the passing of life writes, The pessimist resembles a man who observes with fear and sadness that his wall calendar, from which he daily tears a sheet, grows thinner with each passing day. On the other hand, the person who attacks the problems of life actively is like a man who removes each successive leaf from his calendar and files it neatly and carefully away with its predecessors, after first having jotted down a few diary notes on the back. He can reflect with pride and joy on all the richness set down in these notes, on all the life he has already lived to the fullest. What will it matter to him if he notices that he is growing old? Has he any reason to envy the young people whom he sees, or wax nostalgic over his unlost youth? What reason has he to envy a young person? For the possibilities that a young person has, the future which is in store for him? No, thank you, he will think. Instead of possibilities, I have realities in my past, not only the reality of work done and of love loved, but of sufferings bravely suffered. These sufferings are even the things of which I am most proud, though these are the things which cannot inspire envy. And now, before we continue, let's check our motivation as we usually do. Let's think that if we must suffer, then let that suffering be meaningful. May it not only give both temporary and ultimate meaning to my existence, but may it also be of much benefit to all other living beings as well. In fact, by my suffering, may they all be free of suffering, and by my suffering and through my joy, may they all attain the state free of all suffering, enlightenment. This type of motivation will make the program so meaningful, even if a very few people are involved with it. So let's take a short while to set such a motivation if we can. Otherwise, think that at least through this you can gain your own enlightenment. Thank you. Now just to sign off on the instruction to always keep a cheerful mind, here is Trungru Rinpoche's commentary, which you can find on www.rinpoche.com. He says, Another way to evaluate our practice is to check our mind to see what kind of state it is in. This will also tell how well our practice is going. For instance, when, Ill when illness, accidents or tragedies happen, and we become frightened about them to the extent that depression sits in, our mind training practice isn't working. If these conditions always get the better of us, then the practice is ineffective. Instead of this happening, when negative circumstances occur, we can use our mind training. These obstacles then become like friends of mind training, and we can be happy about them. It is another measure that our mind training practice is working. If something negative happens and we think that we can't bear such suffering, then our practice is not working. But, if negative things happen 
And we instead instantly think, so many people have catastrophes like this. I wish that I could take on all of their suffering as well. Then we know that whatever happens becomes an aid to our mind training. In this way, our mind is always in a happy state because we are able to use whatever arises as part of our practice. The real measurement for mind training is to be found in the instruction at all times rely only on a joyful mind. This has to do with the degree in which we have succeeded in refusing self-cherishing because as long as there is the tendency to refer to me as being so important, then there is selfish hope and fear. By hope, I mean thinking, I hope such and such will happen, and if it doesn't, I'll be disappointed. By fear, we mean, I had this really nice thing or situation, I'm afraid I might lose it. We are pre preoccupied with trying to get what we want, trying to arrange the circumstances for our happiness. This selfish activity is accompanied by worry about what we don't want. When we are concerned that an undesirable situation might happen, when it does, we will become very upset and unhappy. And that is Trungpa Rinpoche, a very high lama of the Kagyu lineage of Tibetan Buddhism. Now the next section of mind training like the rays of the sun deals with how we can tell if the mind training has been successful. Remember again that the author Namkapel is commenting on another text, The Seven Points of Mind Training. He writes, Regarding the actual measure of a trained mind, the text says, The measure of a trained mind is that it has turned away. This refers to the arising of an experience of the stages of practice in your mind, from contemplation of the preliminary practices up to the training in the ultimate awakening mind so that an awareness of the need to make the most of freedom and opportunity under all circumstances, without wasting them, arises naturally in the mind. So basically what he's saying here is that wherever we are, or whatever we are doing, some part of our mind remains aware of the mind training we have done, and we are putting it into practice. We've come to realize that we have no idea how much more life we have, but to make our time meaningful, we really have to use every instant to our advantage. And that means putting what we have learned into practice all the time, not letting even a second go to waste. In the first chapter of a commentary to Shantideva's Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, which he has titled No Time to Lose, the great nun Pema Children comments on a verse that says, So hard to find such ease and wealth, whereby to render meaningful this human birth. If now I fail to turn it to my profit, how can such a chance be mine again? Prima Children writes, From the Buddha's point of view, human birth is very precious. Shantideva assumes that we understand this preciousness with its relative ease and wealth. He urges us to contemplate our good situation and not to miss this chance to do something meaningful with our lives. This life is, however, a brief and fading window of opportunity. None of us knows what will happen next. As I have grown older with my Sangha brothers and sisters, I have seen many of my friends die or experience dramatic changes in their health or mental stability. Right now, even though our lives may seem far from perfect, we have excellent circumstances. We have intelligence, the availability of teachers and teachings, and at least some inclination to study and meditate. But some of us will die before the year is up. And in the next five years, 
Some of us will be too ill or in too much pain to concentrate on a Buddhist text, let alone live by it. Moreover, many of us will become more distracted by worldly pursuits for two, ten, twenty years of the rest of our lives and no longer have the leisure to free ourselves from the rigidity of self-absorption. In the future, outer circumstances such as war or violence might become so pervasive that we won't have time for honest self-reflection. This could easily happen. Or we might fall into the trap of too much comfort. When life feels so pleasurable, so luxurious and cozy, there's not enough pain to turn us away from worldly seductions. Lulled into complacency, we become indifferent to the sufferings of our fellow beings. The Buddha assured us that our human birth is ideal with just the right balance of pleasure and pain. The point is not to squander this good fortune. That's Pema Children. So when this understanding informs our every moment so much that we are continuously and without effort applying the mind-training teachings, the text says we have achieved the measure of a trained mind. We will then have turned away from all the meaningless activities that just waste what Pema Chodron calls our brief window of opportunity. Geshe Jamba Tekchok, an ex-abbot of Sera Monastery in India and a teacher of many Western students, commented on this slogan in terms of self-centeredness like this. At this point, the commentary mentions certain signs indicating some success in our mind training. For example, when we've been practicing for a while, even though we might not have fully abandoned every last sign of selfishness, having been able to weaken it a little is a sign of success. In other words, we know that we're doing well if our selfishness has at least diminished. So he seems to be saying that if we find that we've turned away from our self-centered attitudes and adopted attitudes that cherish others first, even in a small way, we can appreciate that the mind training is being effective. The seven points of mind training text then gives five marks or signs that indicate the mind training is being successful. Namkar Pal says the first sign is that of a great hero who, he comments, constantly familiarizes himself with the awakening mind in the knowledge that it is the essence of all the teachings. Keshe Tekchok says this sign means that we care more for others than ourselves. Then the next sign, according to Namkarpel, is the sign of the great disciplinarian, and I quote, who is careful to avoid even the slightest offense out of his conviction in the law of cause and effect. And Geshe Takchok says that this means that we refrain from any activities that harm others. The third sign is that of the great ascetic, who, according to Namkarpel, can bear hardships in the course of subduing the disturbing emotions in his mind. And to this, Geshe Tekchok says, When we are well trained, we can accept all kinds of suffering if doing so enables us to benefit others and sustain our practice. And we can tolerate difficulties for the benefit of all beings or even just the community in which we live. It has various levels. Then the fourth sign is that of the great practitioner of virtue, who, says Namkapel, never separates the activities of his body and speech from the tenfold conduct of the great vehicle. Now I guess he means that the great practitioner always avoids the ten non-virtues, killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, lying, slander, harsh words, 
gossip, harmful thoughts to others, covetousness and wrong views, and is committed to practice their opposites. Geshe Tekchok is more expansive. He says that as a great practitioner, our mental, verbal and physical activities mostly, though not completely, accord with mind training. And then the final sign is that of the great yogi, who, says Namkarpel, constantly practices the yoga of the awakening mind and its associated teachings. Geshe Tekchok says that as the great yogi or yogini, we can combine the understanding of emptiness with our activities on various levels for the benefit of others. So those are the five signs that will show us how we are going in the mind training techniques. Geshe Tekchok points out that we should not expect to be such great beings in a short space of time. By persevering in our practice of mind training, we'll find that these five signs gradually manifest and then become stronger and stronger, he says. It's like all our practices. They should be done in a relaxed but continuous, unfailing manner and we should not put too much expectations on them. Now the next slogan dealing with whether the mind training is progressing is the trained mind retains control even when distracted. In his commentary, Menam Kaupel writes, Just as a skilled rider will not fall if his horse bolts while he is distracted, similarly, even if we inadvertently hear unpleasant remarks, such as accusations from hostile quarters, or we are criticized and mocked, as there are many who even criticize Buddha, the transcendent subduer, we should understand that it is undoubtedly the result of negative actions we have committed. And then he quotes this verse from Shantideva's Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. Whoever criticizes me or inflicts harm upon others or similarly ridicules me, may they be blessed with enlightenment. When such a thought arises naturally in your heart, says Namkarpel, that is the sign of having trained the mind. Chogyam Trumpa takes a different slant to this. He writes, in training the mind and cultivating loving-kindness, the idea of this slogan is the realization that whenever situations of an ordinary nature or extraordinary nature come up, our pot boiled over, or our steak is turned to charcoal, or suddenly we slip and lose our grasp, a sudden memory of awareness should take place. Jamlon Control's commentary talks about a well-trained powerful horse who loses his balance and suddenly regains it again through losing it. It is similar, I suppose, to skiing, where you use the force that goes down and let yourself slide through the snow. Suddenly you gain attention and develop balance out of that. So whenever there is a sudden glimpse or sudden surprise of losing one's grip, that seeming fear of losing one's reality can be included properly. To do so, there is a need for renunciation. It is not your chauvinistic trip that you are a fantastically powerful and strong person, and also have a sense of mindfulness taking place all the time. But when something hits you, which is the result of unmindfulness, then suddenly that unmindfulness creates a reminder automatically. So you get back on track, so to speak, able to handle your life. And then Trangu Rinpoche takes another approach in his commentary, saying, Another way to evaluate progress in mind training is that we spontaneously think of others even when we are not consciously working with our practice. So, when events arise and we aren't consciously thinking of our practice, instead of getting flustered and forgetting our intention, our natural reaction is bodhicitta, thinking of others. 
if our first spontaneous thought shows that we are not giving preference to ourselves, then this is a sign that even though we are distracted, our practice is working. When we are practicing mind training and we have some results of the practice, the tendency to become conceited may arise. I am special now. I got somewhere through the practice. This is good enough for me. Don't be too happy about having some results because we need to reach complete enlightenment and, and to be capable of helping each and every living being. Until we are capable of helping each being reach liberation, we've not reached our goal. There's no reason to congratulate ourselves too early and be inflated with pride just because we have some signs of practice. Another type of thought can arise. Okay, I'm practicing mind training, but there's not much of a result. We may become disappointed and discouraged, thinking, I'm a hopeless practitioner. I'm not getting anywhere. Maybe there's no way for someone like me really to achieve this kind of practice. We may even become disheartened and give up, which is also not necessary, because we've achieved one result of practice already. Simply understanding the goodness of reducing self-cherishing and valuing mind training. Understanding this is already a sign of good mind training, and we may be able to improve upon that by carrying on without being disheartened. As we apply ourselves to this training, we train our mind. It's not a matter of looking like a good practitioner. Rather, it has to do with putting our heart into it. As the Buddha taught, our goal is to thoroughly train our mind. It's not a matter of being successful, but of trying our best. So whether we have perfected mind training or not, or whether we are trying to become fully enlightened, it is fine. We may not have totally trained our own mind yet, but we are moving in that direction, which is good. That is Trangarumashe. It is perhaps more important now than ever to engage in the mind training, because our modern world is very different from anything that Namka Pell or other ancient masters would have known. In their times, although there were distractions of course, they were nothing like what we have to deal with today. In his book, The Distracted Mind, Ancient Brains in a High-Tech World, Adam Gazelli says that although we humans have very impressive goal-setting abilities, and here I quote, our cognitive control abilities that are necessary for the enactment of our goals have not evolved to the same degree as the executive functions required for goal-setting. Indeed, the fundamental limitations in our cognitive control abilities do not differ greatly from those observed in other primates with whom we share common ancestors tens of millions of years ago. By cognitive control, which he maintains is quite limited in us, he means attention, working memory and goal management. He writes, We can visualize this as a conflict between a mighty force, represented by our goals, which collides head-on with a powerful barrier, represented by the limitations to our cognitive control. The conflict is between our goal-setting abilities, which are so highly evolved, driving us to interact in high-interference environments to accomplish our goals, and our goal-enactment abilities, which have not evolved much at all from our primitive ancestors, representing fundamental limitations in our ability to process information. It is this conflict that results in goal interference and generates a palpable tension in our minds, a tension between what we want to do and what we can do. He goes on to say that we have a dawning realization that this conflict is is 
escalating into a full-scale war as modern technological advancements worsen goal interference to further besiege the distracted mind. Humans have always lived in a complex world, he continues, one rich with enticing distractions and teeming with countless interruptions via alternative activities that threaten to bar us from accomplishing our goals. While goal interference has likely existed for as long as modern humans have walked the earth, the last several decades have witnessed profound changes. The information age has emerged on the heels of modern technological breakthroughs in computers, media and communication. This latest stage in human history may have been sparked by the digital revolution, but the rise of personal computers, the internet, smartphones and tablets is really only the surface. The true core of the change to our mental landscape is that we are experiencing an elevation of information itself to the level of an ultimate commodity. This has fueled an ever-expanding explosion in the variety and accessibility of technologies with enticing sounds, compelling visuals and insistent vibrations that tug at our attention while our brains attempt to juggle multiple streams of competing information. As we see it, three major technology breakthroughs have been monumental game changers in our current lifetime. The internet, social media and smartphones. By game changers, we mean technologies that drive our interference-inducing behaviors both internally and externally and which ultimately aggravate our distracted minds. First, the web made it possible for anyone to access any information at any time. Second, it enabled email, which made communication virtually instantaneous and free. Third, it gave rise to mobile computing and the ability to access information from any location. We no longer need to remember facts. We can simply Google them. Just think how many times a day you're in need of some fact and instead of searching your brain to recall whether you know that fact and, if so, unearthing it from memory, you simply press a few keys or, more likely, tap a few locations on your smartphone screen and you have the answer. Even easier, you can ask Siri and she will find the answer for you. Our technology-rich world has proven to be a both a blessing and a curse. While on the one hand we have access to information or people anywhere at any time, on the other hand we find our attention constantly drawn by the rich, multi-sensory technological environments. It all started with the graphical user interface that took us from the flat two-dimensional text-based environment that operated on a line-by-line -line basis similar to a typewriter to a small picture depicting an operational program. From there it was a short hop to a completely multi-sensory world appealing to all of our visual, auditory and tactile or kinesthetic senses. We now see videos in high definition, often in simulated 3D. We hear high definition stereo sounds that feel as crisp as sounds in the real world. Our devices vibrate, shake, rattle and roll and our attention is captured. He says that one interesting aspect of this is that we seem to have lost the ability to single task. He says, glance around a restaurant. Look at people walking in the city street. Pay attention to people waiting in line for a movie or a theater and you'll see busily tapping fingers. We act as though we're no longer interested in or able to stay idle and simply do nothing. We appear to care more about the people who are available through our devices than those who are right in front of our faces. And perhaps more critically, we appear to have lost the ability to simply be alone with our thoughts. Now that's food for thought. 
if we're wanting to develop a mind that is switched on, even when a myriad things are demanding our attention on devices like the smartphone. We can discuss this further next time, but now we have to leave it there as our time is up. Thanks for joining the program today, and I look forward to being with you next time. Please dedicate any positive potential we've accumulated to gaining enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. Thank you, and goodbye. For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices, or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio, or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.